it to the book of Mark, and if you're using the Pew Bible, that'll be under the seat in front of you, page 844. For this week and next week, we're doing just a two-part mini-series um, on ministry. Um, probably a better way to describe this morning is the trajectory of ministry, and um, more of a bigger picture as many of you know, we started the book of Ephesians in the fall. We took a break from that as we entered the season of Advent. And then we circle into January. In January, um, we'd like to use that time to hit at, you know, maybe some areas of our mission or who we are or just other topics that don't always get attention, but it's a good time to sort of have a refresher or a get on the same page type of uh, series just for ministry, for what we're doing as a church. Last year, you might remember, we looked at the topic of worship for three weeks. And, and so uh, just given what uh, we have left in Ephesians, we're only going to do two weeks here. And I want us to talk about ministry and in, and in one sense have a let's get on the same page as to what ministry really is and, and what is it about as we think about um, who we want to be and our calling as a church and as Christians individually. So we'll be doing that this morning and next week, and we'll pick back up where we left off in Ephesians in chapter 4 on the 22nd. Okay? Um, before I read our text this morning, just a little bit of background about this particular text before I read it. In Mark chapter 8, that is sort of the, the middle of his gospel. This is sort of the fulcrum in which everything swings. Everything sort of builds up to this point, and then, it, then, then from here on, it's a rush to the cross. And what's that point? It's the point where Jesus says to Peter and his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that is what is preceding uh, this text, to which, of course, Peter says, you are the Christ. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 31, just after this moment. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But for whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. This is God's word for us today. Let me pray and ask him to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we pray that as we look at your word, that you would do a miracle, and by miracle, that you would soften hardened hearts. We pray that you would grow something new from what is dead. 
that you would bring forth a harvest in so many respects, whether that's uh, coming to know you for the first time or growing in a way that otherwise would be impossible without your Holy Spirit. And so we ask now that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. That we would leave here changed people because of you and for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Setting my timer for your sake. Uh, Let me ask a question to begin with this morning. Uh, What is something that you didn't want to do, but it just had to get done, and so you found yourself doing it? Um, What is something that you had to do, you didn't want to do it, but it had to get done, and so there you are finding yourself going where you don't want to go? Um, Maybe for something this morning, uh, it's here. Maybe for others, it's just, maybe it's school. I don't really like going to school, but I got to go. Maybe it's the dentist. Some people don't like the dentist. What is something or what is a place that you had to go, you didn't want to go, but you find yourself going there? And maybe this because this happened to to us uh, two nights ago. This is fresh on my mind uh, as we are relatively new to Maryland and, and even newer to the winters, having come from Texas. Um, and we love that. We love the winter. Um, especially this time of year, there's this thing that keeps happening between Ada and I, and that is we, you know, it's evening, we're tired, and we get in bed and just like pull up the, the flannel sheets, and it's awesome because it's just a little bit colder outside than it is in Texas. And you're just about to doze off, and then somebody goes, did you lock the front door? And then maybe the other person would say, yes, I locked the front door. And then maybe the other person might say, are you sure? And there's a moment there, if you've been there, where you can keep going or you can be led where you do not want to go which is where I often find myself after being, you know, almost asleep, getting up in the cold, walking downstairs to check a door that, sure enough, it's locked. Where's a place that you are being led that you do not want to go? I would suggest this morning, especially as we carry this on, the conversation into next week, that ministry very much is that. It, it, it may not be so much uh, being led to or, or going to a place that you want to go. Ministry is really being led to places that you don't want to go for various reasons, for various reasons. And while we'll hit at some more of the specifics of that next week, this week, I, I really just want to look at one, one thing, and that is the topic of, of ministry is really the calling in our lives to die, maybe big deaths, but also little deaths by being led where we don't want to go for the sake of others for the sake of following Jesus. After Jesus asked his own disciples, who do you say that I am? In the text that we just read, Peter said the Christ, and then Jesus goes on to talk about what that means for him, which is that the Christ must what? Suffer and die. And it's at this point that Peter, now granted, this is, this is the apostle Peter here, tells Jesus that'll never happen. We won't let it happen. And any one of us would have done this, by the way. And then there's this moment where, like, if you ever think you're having a bad day or if you're just 
frustrated with, you just don't feel like you're following Jesus well. Just remember this moment where Jesus looks at Peter and calls him Satan and tells him to get behind him. All right? There's, I don't know if it gets much worse than that, and even Peter was restored. So maybe that's our gospel moment at this point. But just remember, that's what happens. And so what Peter is responding to, though, which is what's important for us as we think about ministry, is the inability to see Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, as a what? As a suffering Messiah. In other words, Peter and the disciples need to begin seeing Jesus, the Christ, uh, and his life and his mission. They need to begin seeing it in a new light, not one that looks like the order of the day where crowns in that day and age for sure were taken by force or the use of power. Instead, what a suffering Messiah presumes is that the crown which Jesus will receive will come in a way that no one, especially his closest disciples, are predicting. It would come through what? Death. It would come through dying. And this is the new way that Jesus is teaching his disciples to see just who it is that they are following. I love what Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on this text. If we are to confess Christ, we must embrace a suffering Messiah. Well, what does that have to do with ministry? Well, to follow or embrace the suffering Messiah is to assume, right, the pattern of suffering in your own life for the sake of others. Let me say that again. To follow or embrace a suffering Messiah is to assume the pattern of suffering in your own life displayed in that Messiah, in that Christ. In other words, it is a willingness to be led where you do not want to go. Such was the cross. That is, Jesus' followers are not just beneficiaries of his suffering, though they are. Jesus suffered and he died, and those who believe receive that salvation as he has won for them. That is true, but followers, friends, of Jesus or anyone who believes in him or confesses that he is the Christ, as Peter has previously done, is to do so recognizing that there's a cost to that confession. A cost that calls calls Jesus' followers to take on the pattern of suffering in their own life as well as they what? As the text says, deny themselves take up their crosses, and follow Jesus. But the paradox of this call is that through death comes life. Through death comes a harvest. That is the pattern of Jesus' life, and it will be and is the pattern of your life as well as a follower of Jesus. And just for the sake of clarity, may not, probably, we're not talking about necessarily physical death for you, although that was, that was what it was for Jesus. For the most part, most of us in this room, we're not talking about a physical death in, in a way of, of martyrdom, more than likely. We're talking about small, small deaths, right? Like perhaps maybe just getting up in the middle of the night to check the door that you know is locked. Or the small death of telling somebody you were wrong. Asking for forgiveness. Saying I'm sorry. Repenting. Whatever it would be that has as its starting place 
a following of Christ because he is the Messiah. That's the paradox of this call. Through that death and through the 10,000 deaths that we will experience as followers of his, that's where life comes. And this is where ministry or life change occurs. Changes, change occurs. And this is really what's at the heart of ministry for Christians, right? Ministry in one sense is everything we do as followers of Christ, right? There isn't, there isn't uh, anywhere that we go as Christians, right, where we do not, you know, go as followers of Jesus, of those who have confessed him as the Christ, as people who have said, yes, I will follow you. That's what a Christian is. You can't go to the grocery store and say, okay, at this point in time, I'm going to hit pause on this following Jesus thing, and I'm no longer going to go, you know, the, you know, pumping gas, hospitals, wherever you're going, right? When we confess Christ, we follow a suffering Messiah everywhere all the time, which means that what's at the heart of biblical ministry in the way that I want to present to you this week and next is death. It's a type of suffering and dying to yourself for the sake of Christ, for the sake of others. Just after Kent Hughes says, if we are to confess Christ, we must embrace a suffering Messiah, he adds this, confessing Christ means we must follow him to crucifixion. Not literally, but figuratively speaking. Christians are not picking up their crosses as the next new fad and exercise and weight training. We are signing up for a life of dying 10,000 times over in different ways because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Perhaps Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he wrote, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. So at the heart of biblical ministry, friends, is death. It is a type of suffering, but it is not just for suffering's sake. It is not just for death's sake. It is that so that something new will be born. It is so that a harvest might come. And that is the fruit of the ministry that God is doing in this church and in individuals until he returns, all right? So however God wants to use you for the sake of others, how he wants to change you or how he is calling you to be part of redeeming his creation, as we talked about in our work Sunday school class, all that we would call ministry comes about through dying. Not by keeping one's life, as the text says, but by laying it down for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others so that God might create something new. And that something new, as I'm defining it, is why we love ministry in the first place. When I say we, I'm not talking about pastors, but all of us Christians, right, to some extent, right? And just for the sake of definition, ministry really is getting yourself and others to deal with God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. So just for the sake of definitions, right, there's a lot of different definitions of ministry. I like that one. It is getting yourself and others to deal with God as he has revealed himself in, in Scripture. But when that happens, new life is born, and that is the fruit of ministry that is God at work. And what is, what is that, right? What's the fruit of ministry? It's conversions. Right? It's people coming from death to life. It's things like growing repentance inside of you, which otherwise would not be there. Why would you care? 
It's becoming somebody that's more gentle and humble, somebody that's exercising forgiveness, right? It's new life. It's a harvest that God has created in you and is growing in you. It's seeing this new life grow and emerge in yourself and others. That's the fruit of ministry. But none of that happens outside of what? None of that happens outside of Jesus' call of you to follow him, which means ministry does not happen outside of what? You being asked to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It doesn't happen outside of death. So what does it look like? If the pattern of ministry is cross-shaped or one of suffering, what should we expect as we think about ministry as Christians or as a church? If we as a church want want God to use us in 2023, what will that look like? How could we possibly get on the same page together for the sake of the gospel as we think about our respective ministries? And perhaps the place to start in trying to answer those questions is simply what is the trajectory of ministry as Jesus calls us to follow him? And friends, it is a willingness to be led to places and people you don't want to go to. I think that's a place we can all start. Three things to begin the conversation of what that pattern and trajectory of ministry looks like more specifically as we think about being led to places that we don't want to go. I want to use these three terms. I want us to look at what it means to leave home, to get dirty, and die. Briefly. Um, Dear friend, pastor, mentor of mine, preached, this, preached these points to me at my installation service, which I'm realizing is 15-year anniversary this year, which is pretty exciting. I'm intentionally yanking those points, although this is my sermon, um, because I have not been able to get away from them as it pertains to ministry, and this is what I have to offer you as it pertains to ministry as well. So, What does it mean to leave home, get dirty, and die as our call to ministry to follow Jesus, as our call to die? First one, leaving home. When we think about Jesus' life being a pattern for our own as his followers, we begin with his what? Incarnation. And, you know, just after celebrating Christmas, how fresh this first point hopefully still is in our minds. Jesus, what? He left glory, literally, heaven, perfection, and he came to this marred creation of his, Jesus left what was, you might say, comfortable. What he deserved, even, to take on what he didn't deserve. To take on what wasn't comfortable, what for the sake of others, for the sake of the harvest, for the sake of you. Consider Philippians 2. We read this over the Advent season, which tells us that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Volumes, friends, volumes have been written uh, on just what this means. 
But suffice it to say, when Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a man, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity who has always existed, denied himself by taking on human form. We call this the condescension of the second member of the Trinity. He condescended to us. He was born out of, of us out of the love of the Father and Holy Spirit for us. Excuse me. And in, I might add, submission to the Father's will. It is love that sent Christ here. It is love that says, I will leave home. As it were, for the sake of others, because that's my calling. We see this a very different way, but perhaps maybe clearer to us when we look at Jesus' call of his disciples, as was read earlier in Matthew 4. First, Jesus calls the brothers Simon and Andrew, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he comes to the sons of Zebedee, James and John. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When Matthew tells us that they left their nets, that they left their boat, but probably more specifically their father, they aren't just leaving what is comfortable or what they know, right? They are, they are doing those things. They are leaving an identity, whether they realize it or not. It is an identity of who they are. Who are you? I am the son of Zebedee. Who are you? What do you do? I am a fisherman. They left all of that to follow Jesus. This is a fuller picture of what it means to follow Christ to places you don't want to go, to leave home, to leave what is comfortable, to leave the places that you you feel like this is what I want to be known as? An identity which, which has, you know, wrapped all around it, all of our desires and wants and things? It's to leave all of it, to follow Christ. When we apply this to ministry, to following Jesus in our own context, we might not leave our birthplace, you might not leave College Park, but Jesus is saying, to follow me means to leave what you know, to leave what is comfortable, what is home for my, for my name's sake and for the sake of others. It is to leave behind an old identity to take up a new one, which is seeing yourself as belonging to me. And this will both require, but also feel like a thousand deaths at times. pattern of Jesus's ministry, following that pattern as his believers, as his followers. Ministry, we might think of it this way, that has his fingerprints on it is going to be difficult. It's going to be foreign to us at times. It is going to be uncomfortable. This doesn't mean that ministry is not enjoyable. This doesn't mean that it's not aligning somehow with gifts that he has given you for following him. It simply means that Christians are people who are willing what? To give up what they know, to give up what is comfortable for the sake of others, to be led to places and people that they would otherwise rather not go. The beautiful thing about this is people do this every day. Christians do this every day. Y'all do this every day. This is not the preacher like 
guys are slacking. It's not this, that's not this sermon. Right? You see it, right? You, you see it, whether it's packing up our bags and going to Nairobi, Kenya, or walking into a classroom to teach, or maybe grabbing coffee with somebody because you need to work through some conflict that you otherwise wouldn't want to work through. I think one of the, one of the biggest examples that stuck out to me early on was learning about the life of Henry Nouwen. Some of you might know about him. He was a Dutch priest, scholar, professor, author, um, and after nearly two decades of teaching in our country's highest academic institutes, right, Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, teaching in their divinity schools, Nouwen went then to work with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. He dropped all of it. He left all of it to go to Canada to work in the Arts Daybreak community in Richmond Hill, Ontario, to work with people of special needs, Down syndrome, people who would not know who he was, who would never know or care about the degree, degrees that he had. And he left it all to go serve these people. And you can imagine his friends, and if you read his biographies and you read it, like, his friends couldn't fathom this, right? He had everything in academia that you would think that you would want, right? Degrees. He had it everywhere. Institutions in which he could go teach. He was at the best, right? He had everything as far as book deals, and, and, and like, it, was, it was his to fill out however he wanted it to fill it out. And he left it. He wanted to find a place, he says, that was closer to the heart of God. Okay? I hesitate to use that illustration because the illustration isn't, okay, you have to leave everything that you're doing and then go do something extreme like that. No, I do, I do use it, though, because it helps to illustrate, right, what, whatever God is going to call you to as it pertains to ministry, as it pertains to dying to yourself, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be, it's not going to make sense to people. And maybe to your own heart, it's not going to make sense to you either. But right, the cross, as we just read in Mark, didn't make sense to Jesus' closest friends. But it didn't change his trajectory. And we're thankful for that. And it's calling to us to leave home, right? Whatever that would look like. And we'll get more specific next week, but to leave home is a calling to recognize that if you are going to follow me, prepare yourself to be moved into places you don't want to go. Prepare yourself to leave what is comfortable. I don't know, for some of us, it might mean sitting on the other side of the sanctuary, really. I want to highlight, it's, it's small deaths not just these big, grand experiences that we see people doing in their lives, although that's great. I'm sure at one point for Henry, like he did not think this was big enough. He did not think that this was something to be applauded. As a matter of fact, I know he didn't. He just felt like this is what he needed to do for himself, right? And in those moments, right, you don't know if this is right. <laughs> like, you don't, like, am I crazy? I'm going against, I, I'm swimming upstream so much at this point where so much is telling me you haven't made. And it's not to say that if he would have stayed, that he would not be following Jesus. It's not, it's not the takeaway either. It's just leaving home, going where you don't necessarily otherwise would want to go is what it means to call a 
what it means to follow Jesus, what Jesus is calling us to. Let me move on for the sake of time. Jesus calls us to leave home, but he also calls us to get dirty. What does that mean? Ministry involves being with people and requires a willingness to be inconvenienced in our own lives. And this is the messiness of ministry that Jesus calls us to. To say that Henry Nouwen's decision to go to La Arche uh, brought inconveniences for him would be an understatement, I'm sure. But if we are going to follow Christ, this means we must be willing to be led to places we do not want to go for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. And this means that we must be willing to not just leave home, but to get dirty in the process. As Jesus, as we come back to his pattern of ministry, as he leaves home, as we just looked at, right, he left it in order to what? Be with people. Yes, he had a mission, right? And part of that mission entailed being with people, living with them, having friendships, right? Having family, parents, siblings, right? Jesus did not leave his home of paradise and then sort of uh, find himself either in a cave or in a castle somewhere until his time or his hour had come. Jesus went to and associated with all types of different people. Chief priests, prostitutes, everybody in between, right? Families, lepers. And in so doing, Jesus is saying, I'm willing, I'm willing to take on the messiness of other people's lives. I'm willing to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to be led to places I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go, things I don't want to do for the sake of Jesus and others. Now, I feel like I just need to say, I, I, I like the word otherwise. I, I, we know, as Hebrews tells us, that for joy, Jesus went to the cross because he knew what it meant, because it meant that he could get you. I don't want you to think that Jesus was going to the cross begrudgingly. My heart is, and I, my guess is that your heart is as well. <laughs> so that's where it's different. But the point being made, we are being led to places where we are being called, to, called into the messiness of other people's lives. And if there's an area where this is in conflict with our life and our culture and our day and age, it's, it's just, it, it is, at least for me, it is in the willingness to be inconvenienced by others. And I'm saying that in the sense of like, we are high on the productivity and efficiency level in our culture. We don't have time to stop and help people with a blown tire on the street. We don't have time um, you know, to really get coffee with people. We'll just start to ask how they're doing and hope that they say things are good. And it's not that productivity and efficiency is bad. It's just this is where we are. So when you come into and you break that, right, and, and I'm sure you've experienced in other people's lives as well on your own, there's an inconvenience there. There's a cost. And it doesn't mean that every time that, that that's being presented to you, right? I'm not saying that every time you've got to drop what you're doing and you've got to get dirty, as it were, and get into the messiness of people's lives. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that let us, re, let us be reminded of, at least, right, what is the expectation that Jesus gives to us when he says, come follow me? And he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. To leave home, to get dirty, is to be uh, moving to places that are uncomfortable, but is to be inconvenienced as well. This point might be an obvious one for ministry. Yeah, Ryan, if we want to do ministry, we, we must get involved in the lives of people. But I, I don't think we should assume this, especially pastors, right? As pastors, it is so easy to build a ministry around what? Books and not people. But it's so easy to build a ministry around preaching and not relationships. 
ministry is both of those things, right? Preaching and teaching ministry is crucial, but it is not done in a vacuum, right? It is done in the lives of people, being with people, to the degree that I have an effective preaching and teaching ministry is the degree to which I'm willing to get involved in the lives of my people, right? That's not just my job, though. That's your job as well and your calling as well, right? Whether that is going to your workspace, hospitals, bedsides, ministry happens uh, on youth soccer fields, watching games over coffee. It happens around dinner tables and phone calls. All of that is true for you as it is for me. But to, the, to do this, <clears throat> again, requires a willingness to get the messiness of ministry, the brokenness of people's lives on you, as it were. You can't avoid it for the sake of the gospel. And while that means several things, the place this challenges our culture the most is the willingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. A mutual friend of mine and Ada is a pastor. Uh, his name's Les. We'll call him Les. Um, Les has served many roles in Ada and I's life uh, before we knew each other um, and after we got married and after we went to go work for RUF. And uh, Les has been, um, you know, just he's been a friend, a mentor, a boss, uh, speakers at times when we've gone to different conferences. And one day early on in um, my ministry with RUF, just fresh out of seminary, I was, I was clearly struggling over a sermon I was trying to write. And it probably should be noted that early on in my ministry, we were all finding people as pastors who we, we want to preach like. And, and I, I really wanted to preach like less. And so I was frustrated, as she could tell, because my sermon wasn't coming together the way that Les's sermons come together. It wasn't as polished as Les's sermons were polished at the time. And, of course, he's had 15 years' experience before, you know, at that point in time in my life. And so Eddie could tell that I was frustrated. And she goes to tell me this story, and she knows who Les is. And she says, you know... Um, where she grew up and where Les worked uh, as a pastor, they were really close. And she, uh, they went on this, she was in high school at the time, and she talks about going to this high school uh, ski trip. And it was like, a, you know, just a, a retreat of sorts. And so they had gotten Les to be the speaker. She's coming in, she's telling me this, and I'm like, oh, great, great. Tell me about how good Les was. Um, and she goes on to talk about how, you know, this one particular year they, they were out there, and, um, and she said it was, you know, the, the neatest thing, Les decided to go out skiing with them. This is, you know, to a high school student. And, and, he, and for her, she rode, he rode the lift with her and a few of her friends and asked her questions. What grade are you in? What do you like to study? And um, what are the things you're most excited about? What's challenging? And, you know, for her at the time, it was just, I can't believe he's out here doing this. Um, he could probably be doing a lot of other things. And it was just, it meant a lot to her. And, you know, I think I'm sure she was probably, as a high school student, there's the speaker. It's kind of one of these moments like, uh. But then she looks at me and she says, you know, Ryan, like, do you know what I remember that week? Um, I remember Les riding the chairlift with me. I couldn't tell you one thing that he talked about. And that's not to say that his sermons weren't effective or good, Right? Like the measure of a good sermon is not its memor how, how memorable it is. It does its work as it's being heard and listened to. But that was her point. Her point was, this is what matters. 20 years later, all I can think about is the fact that he was willing to be inconvenienced to come out with high schoolers that day and ski. Now, I know that example actually is kind of bad as it talks about getting dirty with people, as I'm talking about going skiing somewhere. But this is actually good for the sake of like, look, 
I'm sure Les had other things to do that day. Even as a father of three, right, getting some time to go away and go skiing, uh, maybe just wanted to ski by himself as opposed to deal with high school students, right? Maybe he just wanted to stay in his room and, and read and get caught up on reading that he hadn't been able to do. Maybe he wanted to watch something, not at that point in time, but watch something on Netflix. Maybe he, I can think of a thousand other things that I know, and actually having been in his shoes later on in ministry with being conference speakers and going to far off places, you are tired and really you have the privilege to just do what you want to do and then just show up and give your, your sermon. That's not what he did. And for a high school student, it mattered. When we understand that ministry involves being with others and requires the willingness to be inconvenienced, it creates a natural posture of what denying ourselves means. It means that for your interests and your likes, right, your desires, they are not what takes priority. And that, friends, is the death that you and I experience a thousand times over as we follow Christ. Christians are not people who follow their hearts. I am rarely, rarely inconvenienced for the sake of others when I am following my heart. Our desires do not take priority, which as it pertains to ministry means that we are not promised ministry towards others what on our terms. This is what it means to get dirty to move into the implications of ministry, which is to be in the midst of people, to be in the trenches with other people. So we need to understand that the expectation that Jesus gives us, should anyone come after him, is that getting dirty, getting involved in people's lives, and the messiness that that can be is not just the ministry of sharing the burdens of other people, although it is, right? It's also the practice of forsaking your own comforts and desires to do so. It is being led where you do not want to go for the sake of Jesus and others. All right, so far, Jesus' call to follow him, to leave home, to get dirty, and to, and to die so that something new might uh, grow requires a willingness to leave what we know, a willingness uh, to move into what is uncomfortable and be inconvenienced for the sake of others. I'm way long on time here. I recognize... And maybe this is important to say, um, just for those that might just hear something different, I'm not saying that if you are enjoying any comfort, any convenience in life, right, that you are not following Jesus correctly. Please don't hear that. I'm not saying that. As a matter of fact, it is a recognition of your creature status that you are limited and that you have capacity for things that others don't. In other words, you get burnt out. I get burnt out. You can only do so much. Don't hear me saying that if you are home enjoying that glass of wine and that Netflix, right, which we can say amen to because all good things come from Jesus, that you are not following Christ, right? What I am saying, right, Perhaps to put it another way, is if we aren't being inconvenienced, if we are always navigating our lives in our own bubble, by our own comforts, we might need to re-examine the Jesus that we are following. Before we run out of time, let me move on to this last point. And that is that we are called to die. 
All of ministry as it pertains to following Jesus leads us to death, death of self, death of my own comforts, death of my own dreams, death of my own desires and wants for the sake of Christ and others. He might give you those things. But for the Christian, we're not promised those things. And that is the posture, that is the disposition of us as we think about ministry together, as we think about what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It might mean that you never get the things that you have always dreamed and wanted. But here's the thing. I promise you, I promise you, what you will receive will far outweigh anything that you could have imagined would have been better. We come back to the pattern of ministry that Jesus sets for us. Where, where did Jesus' ministry take him? It took him to the cross. And that's where we get this point, right? This is the whole paradigm shift that the disciples, especially Peter, are having in this text. They are not thinking of a suffering Messiah. They are not thinking of losing their own lives or the possibility of that anyway. They're not thinking of weakness as the mode of strength in the kingdom of God. Their paradigm is the world's paradigm of power, self-preservation, and rule. It is not denial and cross-bearing. But that's not what Jesus says in verses 34 to 35. It's those who save their lives that lose it. It's those that lose their life for his sake that save it. And why? Because following Jesus and the ministry that flows from that is always cross-shaped. It is a long walk with a cross that ends in death. It is a willingness to be led where you do not want to go for the sake of others as Jesus did for you. But as I said in the beginning, it is not just for death's sake. It's not just for suffering's sake, right? It is so that new life may be born. It's so that a harvest might come. I'll close with this. I'm sure many of you are aware uh, of, of this last Monday of um, what happened to uh, Buffalo Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin. Um, if you aren't, let me, let me tell you what happened on Monday night. This is not a sports illustration, by the way. Um, thank you for laughing at that. Uh, Damar Hamlin, 24 years old. Um, he's on the defense side of the ball. Uh, goes to make a routine tackle against the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, in, that, in that hit, a routine hit he's made a thousand times, he goes to stand up, and as he stands up, on plain live television, he just collapses. And what we would find out is that DeMar suffered what is believed to be what some call this uh, commotio cordis, or concussion of the heart. It is a rare combination of events and timing initiated by a hit to the chest that causes the heart to actually go into cardiac arrest. Super rare, but this is what happened on Monday night. If you've been kind of hearing some of the buzz, people watched their teammate friend die. For 17 minutes, he laid on the field as medics rushed to him, as they opened up his uniform and immediately began CPR. Most of the time, this is a concussion. Most of the time, you know, the lifelessness that we see and we hope that things are okay, it's that type of work. He, he is dead. And you, uh, if you're watching it live, right, you're seeing grown men in tears because they know this is different. They know that this is not 
a concussion. And they're watching these medics come out and try to keep this young man alive. They had to administer uh, you know, an AED, automated, automated external defibrillator, to get his heart going again. He lay lifeless on the field, surrounded by medics as his teammates and other teams prayed, interesting enough. But as players, they, they couldn't watch. They knew what was going on as they witnessed the death of their friend and teammate. Now, thankfully, due to the timing and attention of the medics on the field, right, and the hospital staff in Cincinnati, DeMar's pulse would return. Like, this, this is a miracle. It's an amazing turnaround, right? The, the past Thursday of this week, right, he came out of this coma, and then by Friday, doctors were able to actually remove his breathing tube. His first question on Wednesday afternoon was, did we win? Since then, he is talking to family and friends and seems to not have lost any cognitive ability. It's, how do we say it? It's, it's a miracle, Behind the scenes, and this is where I'm going to leave the story, something else has been going on. And some of you all might be aware of this too. And that is, DeMar had a GoFundMe page. And this GoFundMe page, he started in 2020 when he entered the NFL to raise money for children in his communities from a small town in Philadelphia. And this GoFundMe page was designed to, uh, at this point in time, when it first got initiated in 2020, it was going to raise money to, to, to provide toys for kids at Christmas. But the vision, of course, is bigger than that. We're going to do back to school. We're going to do anything that we can in order to give back to the place that did so much for him. And this is what I loved about the GoFundMe page. Its goal was to raise $2,500. $2,500. And thankfully, for those who were generous enough to give that year, they made that goal. DeMar's GoFundMe page would, would stay there, and as of this past Monday, they had raised a little more because of his growing awareness in football and uh, building this foundation. But between Monday and Wednesday, when there was no hope of DeMar living, the GoFundMe page went up to $4 million dollars. Right, but it didn't stop there. As of today, it's over $8 million. Something must die for a harvest to come. Thankfully, DeMar Hamlin will be okay. But friends, Jesus' death promises what? A harvest 100-fold. And you and I, right, the church, we are that harvest because why? He was led to a place otherwise he would not want to go. And he is calling you to follow him there as well. That's ministry. That's following Jesus. That is leaving home, that is getting dirty, and that is being willing to die for the sake of others, for the sake of this king that you follow, that you profess, that you profess is the Christ would we follow him to the places and to the people that he is calling us that we otherwise might not want to go? Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text, for the struggle that your disciples had and understanding just who they were following. And if, and if anything, may we all be reminded that we are not following um, someone who comes into this world and, and takes the things by the means of, of the world and the way that the world takes them. We are following a suffering Messiah. And as you call us to follow you and the implications of ministry that that would create, we pray that we would be reminded of what that actually means. That we would deny ourselves, take up our crosses, follow you, that we would understand that death is at the center of what brings the harvest, of what brings new life into this world. For whatever questions we have about what that looks like specifically, would you help us to begin there? And perhaps the next question we have is, what does it look like to, to die a small death in the places of ministry, the places of influence that we find ourselves that you're calling us to? Who are we ignoring? What are the places we avoid that would be a small death in the way of moving into the messiness of people's lives for the sake of the kingdom? Would you do that for us? Would you do that in us? For the sake of your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.